Hi, this is Pierce Boyne, the digital media editor for the Journal of Neurologic Physical Therapy. This podcast episode is part of a new series where an Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy special interest groups talk with JNPT authors about their research, unique and unexpected findings, and how to translate these findings to clinical practice. In this episode, the Degenerative Diseases SIG is interviewing Dr. Graham Cochrane, a PhD graduate and MD student in the NIH Medical Scientist Training Program at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. He will be discussing his article, Comprehensive Clinical Assessment of Vestibular Function in Multiple Sclerosis, which will be in the July 2021 issue of JNPT. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to 4D. Deep dive into degenerative diseases. Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations. Welcome to 4D, a podcast brought to you by the Degenerative Disease Special Interest Group. I'm Rebecca Martin, a physical therapist, and I serve as the chair of the DDSIG. We're happy to be partnering with the JNPT to bring you another episode. Graham, can you tell us a little bit about your professional background? Sure. Yeah. So I'm uh, in the medical scientist training program at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. So that's an MD-PhD program that's funded by the NIH. Um, I've been in this program since I finished undergraduate in 2015. So I've been here for about six years. It's an eight-year-long program. Um, I've just completed my PhD in rehabilitation science, so sort of the middle portion of the MD-PhD training. Um, completed two years of medical school before I started that PhD training and will be going back to medical school following uh, my PhD being approved and everything um, to finish off my MD. Great. And so I know that's not a very typical path. So what are your long-term career goals? Definitely. Um, so I've always want. I, I did a lot of uh, human subjects research, did concussion research in undergrad, and saw uh, sort of how impactful translational research could be, sort of in a day-to-day basis for patients, where there weren't a lot of uh, resources or sort of emerging sciences for the diseases that they're struggling with. And so I really wanted to be on the forefront of this clinical research translational uh, approach. Um, And so my goal now, after I've been doing this PhD work, which sort of introduced me to vestibular function testing and clinical vestibular disease, is to be a clinician focusing on vestibular disease, either through a neurology pathway or otolaryngology down the road. But I need to decide whether I want to do the clinical or surgery side. Awesome. And so you started talking about the research that we're going to talk to you about today. I'd just like to give you a minute to acknowledge the team that worked on this project with you. Yeah, absolutely. So so this project is a collaboration between two labs at UAB. So my lab, the Vestibular Ocular Research Clinic, uh, we really started as a concussion lab trying to understand um, how vestibular function change in concussion. And we ended up partnering with the Exercise Neuroscience Research Lab, also at UAB. Um, that's headed by Dr. Rob Model, who's a co-author on this paper. And they really focus on mainly people with multiple sclerosis, but how do how can we better uh, develop exercise interventions or other types of interventions for people with MS? So this was sort of a, our clinical testing background with our equipment from the, v, the vestibular ocular research clinic with Dr. Model's expertise in treating people with MS. Right. So uh, I noticed that, you know, you're publishing in JNPT with physical therapists. You're not a PT yourself, Correct. but you do research with physical therapists 
physical therapist. So yes. just kind of wondering with your day-to-day, uh, how much interaction you have with PTs? Absolutely. So my main research mentor is Dr. Jennifer Christie, who's a co-author on this paper as well. And she's a PT PhD. Um, she's actually the head of the uh, Doctor of Physical Therapy program here at UAB. So she's mainly teaching in an administrative role with physical therapy students. Um, so I sort of interface with PT in a lot of different ways. We have uh, DPT students coming through my lab to do different projects. We actually just published a paper with some of those DPT students. Um, so I see them in the lab, kind of get them into the research mindset. Um, I've taught a few journal clubs for PT students. But then on the other side, my rehabilitation science PhD program um, is a joint effort by the UAB PT department and OT department to try and get people in those fields into research. And so I get to learn from fantastic physical therapists and occupational therapists uh, throughout my PhD training, which is not typically what somebody going an MD route would get exposed to. Uh, so I learned a ton about how uh, PT and OTs operate clinically through my research training. Um, so I've, I've been able to show them the research world and they've been able to show me the clinical world and how they operate. Right. And I I kind of see that as you can be a great ambassador, you That's know, goal, when yeah. yeah, when you're going out into these, uh, into your medical fields to really say, this is what they can do. Right. Um, this is within their scope. So that's great news for us. Yeah. Thank and you. It- it's something I, I really didn't appreciate how little of that training I was getting in my MD curriculum until I started doing the PhD work. I was like, wow, I'm so glad I've gotten this experience and can talk, be able to talk about them and understand what they do a little bit more. That's great. So the research topic with vestibular issues in multiple sclerosis, how did you land on that as a research topic? Sure. Um, so it, it really, it, it stemmed from our concussion research, which we have another paper published in JNPT from 2019 on that, on that research, um, looking at vestibular function, people with concussion. And we found eventually, I don't want to go into too much, but essentially the same findings that we're going to discuss here in the paper, where we found problems with these central integration functions in people with concussion. Um, and as I was presenting this to my thesis committee, one of the members of which was Dr. Rob Model, and I was trying to figure out how I could pursue this in the concussion world, he pulled me aside at the end of my meeting and said, there's a lot of people looking at the central integration of vestibular function in people with MS as well. And we should try to apply some of the, fu- some of the function tests that you're doing in your concussion research to the MS population and see if we see some connections between the two projects. And we uh, submitted a, a grant proposal to the foundation of the Consortium of Multiple Sclerosis Centers, which is always a mouthful for me to say. Um, and I was awarded a medical student research scholarship from them. Um, and so basically, since we had some research funding and obviously people are excited about this idea, I decided to pursue it for my thesis work. Yeah, and I think that's, it's really great that you're saying that you got the idea from one diagnosis and you're able to carry that, that same concept over. Does it work in another diagnosis? Because so often we don't have the research on each distinct diagnosis. And this is a, a good example for how you can kind of pull from one and maybe use it in another, you know, with some clinical reasoning. Absolutely. So I know that you said that there's a, a prevalence of balance disorders. You know, it's about 75% in people with MS and dizziness is somewhere between 49 and 59% um, in people with MS. Is this, uh, this kind of testing something you feel like should be standard for everyone with MS who walks through our door? In terms of things I'm doing or asking yeah, them? Yeah, in, in terms of okay, the, yeah. the research that you're coming up with. Absolutely. So, mm-hmm. so that was one of the things when we were setting up this project, what we were trying to, what, one of the things we had to decide was, should we just get people with MS who already say they're dizzy or already have balance dysfunction, or should we just take in essentially anyone with MS and see what's happening with them? Um, 
I don't think, and one of the goals of this paper, I don't think all of these tests need to be done on every patient by any means. Um, and hope, uh, one of our goals was trying to present everything you could test of vestibular function people with MS to try and tease out which ones, if you want to look at some vestibular functions, which ones might be the most efficacious to look into. Um, okay, so I'm gonna interrupt for just a second. Yeah. So what, what tests did you look at? Can yeah. you just run us through them quick? Absolutely. So we did multiple tests of the vestibular ocular reflex, or VOR. Uh, we did testing through a rotary chair, which is a very specialized, expensive piece of equipment um, through video eye tracking. We also did a video head impulse test, which does not require, video, require a rotary chair, but does require eye tracking goggles. We did a dynamic visual acuity test. We did things called vestibular evoked myogenic potentials. Uh, there's two different types, cervical and ocular, CVEMP and OVEMP. Um, we did two different tests of subjective visual vertical, one in the rotary chair and a bucket test uh, that people are going to be familiar with. And um, uh, that, that's all of our vestibular function tests for this, for this study. Yeah. Okay. Wait, so before we yeah. go on, I have to ask, yes. how did you prepare participants for this kind of intense vestibular testing day? Absolutely. What, did, what did you tell them ahead of time? Yeah. So, so I, I got, I actually got the the quote from a few of my early participants who said going to my lab was like going to the carnival um, because I was spinning them around in a rotary chair. Um, sides, another study that we collected day on the same time to use the sensory organization test, the balance measure with the wall that moves with you. Um, and so basically they're spinning around as disorienting them. And they said it was like they're going to and uh, like they're going to the carnival. So basically when I was presenting it to them, the only thing anyone cared about hearing about was the rotary chair. Cause I said, I'm going to strap you into a chair in complete darkness <laughs> and spin you around back and forth and look at how your eyes respond. Um, and Did anybody ask if that was real? No, absolutely. They, they didn't believe me. They're like, oh yeah, it's just going to be like a little thing. And then they go into the room and the entire room is sort of built around this, this big pod with a chair in it. It looks like you're going up into space. Um, we have a lot of like space motifs and like a little astronaut vest on the outside of it, buzz light years on the door. Um, Cause we originally started looking at kids with concussion in the lab. Um, so it, it, it was, it was scary for a lot of people. And um, a, a lot of people didn't want to do the study uh, because they were claustrophobic. It sounded like they would lose their lunch. Uh, they weren't interested in the rotary chair part, um, but enough people were interested in it and want to contribute to, you know, uh, improving research for people with MS that I, I got a lot of interest in it. And some people loved it. <laughs> right. Uh, so on that note too, did you have people who actually did lose their lunch? No, no. Okay. Um, we, <laughs> we've tested, I think, close to 400 people in my lab and only one of the very first people, it turned out they had uh, not related to my study at all. I think they had undiagnosed vestibular migraines and we helped them figure mm -hmm. out that they had that problem. Um, we, we have not had any trouble. There are, there are definitely people who are claustrophobic. Um, one good thing about the rotary chair, I guess, is that it's in complete darkness. So once they're in there, it's hard for them to tell how small of a enclosure they're in. Yeah. Um, but but some individuals still still can't really handle it. Okay. So any of the tests that you did are they things that we could actually do in the clinic with our patients, or are pretty much of the test things that we would have to refer out or send somebody or do a similar test? Sure. Yeah. And um, I we. I, gonna talk about a few different companies devices i didn't get paid by any of them they, they gave us their equipment um so we tried them out so uh the rotary chair is definitely something that is not is going to be pretty specific not a lot of people are going to have access to a rotary chair so we want to do the video the vor testing that vestibular ocular reflex in both a rotary chair and a video head impulse system which is them wearing goggles and you very quickly move their head in different directions um the 
just the goggle system for that V-HIT test is probably something that's more clinically feasible uh, for your average clinician. Um, the dynamic visual acuity test, while we did it computerized, it can be done with a simple uh, Snellen eye chart. Um, and so it's very, very feasible to be doing clinically. And we also included that subjective visual vertical test both in the rotary chair, a very sort of advanced way of doing it, and the plastic bucket test that some people who already do vestibular testing might be familiar with in a PT clinic. Great. Which ones turned out to be the most important test to use for somebody who has MS? Sure. Yeah. So, so we were expecting to see um, some more differences on a few of the tests. So a lot of research has looked at VEMPs, CVEMP and OVEMP people with MS and said that that might be an early diagnostic marker of uh, you know, lesions in MS. We did not find that in our studies at all. Um, and some studies have been mixed about the V-HIT. We didn't find that it was very useful in our people with MS, but the things that we're looking at, um, integration between vestibular function and other sensory systems, for instance, the dynamic visual acuity or the subjective visual vertical test, which uses both vision and your perception of vertical that comes from your vestibular organ, uh, look to be impaired in people with MS. Interestingly, the DVA, dynamic visual acuity, was not different between our controls and our people with MS, but it was correlated with disease severity in people with MS when we just looked at the MS group. Okay, so if you had to say yeah. in, in you know, one sentence, um, what would be the battery of tests that you would recommend if somebody through with MS comes walking through your door and they say, I have dizziness and you're thinking, eh, I think it might be vestibular, I would do these tests. Yeah, so so I would look at um, an ocular measure. So I do either dynamic visual acuity or VOR cancellation. You can do VOR cancellation without what we had, but it, uh, I think dynamic visual acuity is more feasible. And I'd look at subjective visual vertical, which is sort of a orientation to equilibrium test. So DVA okay. and SVV. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> and if we're going to do the VOR cancellation, so I, I think you're referring to, you know, lock your arms out ahead of you. You're staring at your thumbs. You're going to turn your head and your thumbs at the same rate. And, you know, there's the specific rate and the degrees that we're going to look at there. Right. Now, if somebody was going to do the VOR cancellation, it's my understanding they should still do the HIT test first, even if maybe it's not the best test to actually identify it. But if you do a VOR and you get a negative, it could be a false negative if they have a positive HIT test. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So I, I would recommend doing a, a V-HIT test um, because okay. I, I think you're going to find some people uh, have... I, I would I would want to look at eye movements and also this equilibrium sense. So basically looking at some VOR function, this SVV function. Um, I think a V-HIT is a great way to figure out if they have hypofunction already, um, which we didn't really find our people with MS, but still might be useful. And then this VOR cancellation gets at, is it a vestibular problem or is it an integration between the visual and vestibular system that's causing some symptoms, if that makes okay. sense. Okay. And the, uh, what about like a modified SITSIB or a CTSIB? Yeah. So, so uh, we didn't include it here just because we, were we did a lot of different function tests here. Um, we, we did the sensory organization test as well. Um, I'm familiar with the MTSV. I called it like the cat sip or something when I did it with a concussion participants. Yeah. So, so very similar to the SOT. I, I think that should definitely be included as well. I was fo focusing on what's in this paper, um, but our data outside of just what's in this paper would also w want to do some sort of balance assessment 
And how many participants did you have in your study, both the control and the individual? Yeah, so, so we had 40 people with MS and 20 age and sex match controls. So essentially what I did there, since it was half the population, we found two, um, for instance, uh, white females who were 42 and 44. And then I found a white female control who was 43. I averaged by uh, race and sex around the same age and found a control that was the average of those two individuals. All right. And I wanted to talk a little bit more about these SVV measures. Um, yeah. So could I'll, I'll let you go here. So sure. if you want to tell us a little bit more about what clinically we could do for maybe people who aren't as familiar with the book of test. Yes, yes. So, um, so traditionally, subjective visual vertical is used for diagnosing peripheral vestibular dysfunction. So a peripheral organ lesion or um, some damage to one specific vestibular organ. And they do that by looking at the average deviation on SVV. So basically you have them set a line straight a number of times, either in a rotary chair or using that plastic bucket. And you look at their average response. Um, and what we looked at in our concussion study that led into this study, we found that the average response was not significantly different between people with or without concussion, but the variance in response was the issue. And if you just look at the average response, you're losing a lot of potential data. Because um, the way the test works, if you had a deviation that was positive 10 degrees, which is insanely tilted, and then negative 10 degrees, and you average those two, you have a perfect deviation of zero, and you look normal on the test, for instance. That's a extreme example. Right. Um, so in this study here, we looked at both the average deviation and the variance in response. And we found that the average deviation in people with MS was not significantly different between our controls and our people with MS. It didn't correlate with MS disease severity, but the variance in response was significantly different and significantly correlated with disease severity. So we think the central measure, if you will, of SVV is this variance in response, whereas average is more of a peripheral vestibular measure. Okay. So with the, with the variance, then you're thinking we definitely need to do higher reps. I think in your paper, you were talking about 12 repetitions or asking them to find it 12 times. Is that right? Yeah. So, so for this study, we did six in the rotary chair, we did six vertical and six horizontal. Um, for our bucket test, we did two sets of six, but we always did vertical. Um, um, I, I think if it's variance turns out to be that measure, we might just want to throw in some more um, some more trials, maybe doing 12 instead of six for individuals, um, because that, that would help get rid of some false positives. If you have a healthy individual who just does badly on one of those six, they might have a higher variance um, just because of one single bad trial. But if you just increase the number of trials you're doing, you're going to get a much a, a, a more tight variance for an individual. All right. Now I got a technical question for you. Yes. So you were talking about, well, if you have, you know, negative 10 in one direction and 10 in the other direction, and then you take the average of those, you're going to end up with zero and it's going to look like not a lot Correct. of variance. Um, what if you use the absolute value of the deviation? Would that be another alternative to calculating that? Sure. So that, that is an interesting question. So clinically, no, because people care which side you're tilted towards. The measure we actually used in our study was the absolute average deviation. So we, we didn't just look at average um, between negative and positive. We, we first did absolute values and then averaged. Okay. And now on, on a different track here. Um, so with, with pusher syndrome, with stroke, we also see this deviation from vertical, right? Mm. But the theories there are that it's the posterior lateral thalamus or maybe the parietal area. And you see this more typical 18 degree. Now, 
does that play in an MS or this is totally different topics? Yeah, so so that that's something I wish we had some some imaging potentially for these participants to see uh, where they might have some deficits or white matter tract damage. Um, I think it's the I, I think it's the cortical processing of vestibular information that is leading to this increase in variance in people with MS. So based on our data, from what we can understand, the peripheral organs seem to be sending signals properly into the brainstem because our vestibular reflexes look look fine from VOR and VEMS. Um, but anything that uses this central processing that takes up these higher cortical areas, some in the parietal cortex, some things in the thalamus, um, are impaired in people with MS. So I, th I think it's a very similar process, and it's an it, it, more so uh, a loss of this white matter track integrity and integration of things rather than maybe just one part in damage to the parietal lobe um, from a stroke or something like that. All right, very interesting. And are we talking about when we're seeing greater variance, um, did you say that is associated with a greater disease severity? Yes. So we, yep. so we should expect that individuals are going to have more and more trouble with this as their disease progresses. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so we, um, so if you start doing variance measures with your patients, you will probably see that there's a massive difference. Uh, there's a very, very skewed distribution where we had some people. Um, so for instance, if you look at our paper, our median variance in response was around like 1.5, but I had people with a variance response of 100 degrees. So it's an extremely skewed variable. Wow. So we transformed it first, log transformed it before we correlated it with disease severity and found that this log transformed variance measure was significantly correlated with MS severity. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's going to be hard, at least from my perspective, to come up with a clinical cutoff for it, just because there's a lot of people who are clustered up, and then there's these huge, huge uh, variances for some individuals. Um, so it might require a little fine-tuning of um, how we transform the measure. But you should see increased variances with more severe disease. So at what point would we you know, stop telling our patients, we really expect to see some recovery, do these exercises, things are going to get better and really switch to, all right, you're on this progressive track and maybe we need to do these compensations and focus more in that direction. Sure. So I, I think, uh, Starting off that question, it's important to note that our sample was made up of only people with relapsing remitting MS. So we did not look at any progressive forms of MS, which you might want to be a little bit more, um, a little bit more liberal with what you're putting them through. Maybe doing these gaze stabilization trainings are, is just better earlier, even if they're not showing signs early on in disease, uh, because things might be progressing longer or, excuse me, faster. Um, I, I think as long as they're still able to be up and moving, I, I think that balance training is probably going to be pretty beneficial for them. Um, when it starts to become a little bit dangerous for them to do so, if they have a cane or a walker, um, you might need to start looking at some some other methods like trying to do, uh, I don't know if the VOR cancellation is turn, going to turn out to be a therapeutic option, um, but doing some more uh, conserved seated therapies might be better uh, once it gets a little bit unsafe for them to be trying to do these very complex uh, balance training tools. And how about habituation exercises? Yeah, I, I think that those are um, going to be really important with this trying to uh, rewire these integration processes. Um, and again, there, I, I think just trying to get them in as early as you can, as soon as they're showing any signs of dizziness or imbalance um, is going to at least help, uh, at least help slow progression to where they wouldn't be able to uh, do these exercises. And, and I'll say that that's why we, another reason we pick this sample population is these are the individuals who we really think 
are going to be able to be benefited by vestibular rehab, which is a very active, you know, physical process of trying to do these balanced trainings. And once you get above that six and a half EDSS and you're not able to ambulate safely yourself, expecting you to do these uh, equilibrium exercises is pretty unreasonable in our opinion. Right, absolutely. We've talked about the individuals with the relapsing remitting. So it seems important to ask these exercises, how would you keep somebody going when they are actually in a relapse? Is this something mm -hmm. that they should take a total break from, or these are things that you think are okay to, to keep doing at that point? Yeah. So I, I think it, from, from my understanding, from my standpoint, it comes down to safety. So if they're doing this with a therapist uh, in a clinic, I think if they're feeling up to it, they should be at least trying to manage it. Um, but I, I don't think it's unreasonable to wait until their symptoms uh, go away a little bit. We, we had, um, I had an individual who had been, so we only took individuals who are six months from their previous relapse. And they said that they were doing great. They were feeling fine. And then some of my testing even made them a little symptomatic, whether that was related to the relapse or not, I don't know. Um, but it, some of these function tests and putting them through these things might, might uh, cause some trouble if they're in like an active relapse situation. Right. And certainly we'd want to consider the level of exercise that right. we're asking them to participate if they're doing anything dynamic, but right. that's really great perspective that even some of the testing was enough to possibly. Right. Absolutely. Aggravate that. Yeah. All right. So before I let you go, I want to make sure that we talk about what of this material can we apply on Monday or how do we use what we've learned from this talk? So if I had a patient with MS who comes into my clinic on Monday, can you make some recommendations for what you absolutely think we should be applying from today's talk? Sure. So I think the first step, uh, which we don't even get into in this paper, is trying to assess something we talked about earlier, is this perception of dizziness or imbalances is a peripheral vertigo problem, or is this a feeling of disequilibrium um, and, you know, feeling of unease uh, in motion or at rest and trying to tease apart uh, where to go from there, sort of, you know, you could use the dizziness handicap inventory, which is a good survey for that, or just asking them questions about what makes their dizziness worse? When do they feel it the most? Do they feel the sensation of movement? I think that's a great first step. Our data suggests that people with mild MS, they're going to be more on that disequilibrium side, just from these, just from the data here, um, how they look clinically. Um, so if you're finding somebody that looks like our study sample, you'll want to look at uh, things like their dynamic visual acuity to make sure that their eye movements and motion are proper um, and potentially look at subjective visual vertical um, or uh, some sort of balance assessment. Um, I think that those two are going to be very related to each other. I think uh, this disequilibrium issue on SVV manifests itself physically as trouble with balance and postural sway. Um, you can do a really easy bucket test with an angle finder from Home Depot if you want to get into subjective visual vertical testing. Uh, just record every single angle and don't just take the average. I think that would be an important takeaway, um, something that a lot of people already doing SVV can bring into their practice already. Um, and if they have those issues, then you might want to start looking at some disequilibrium, some balance training, um, sort of standing in different sensory conditions to try and address those issues. And when you're talking about calculating the variance, there are apps out there that will help with that, right? Because not of us, all of us are no, statisticians, so... Yeah, um, you can. I, the, the way I was doing this at the beginning was just Googling a variance calculator and you just put in all the numbers and it'll tell you their variance and response. Um, if you want to include this in some way and wherever you're putting their patient information, you can put in all their angle responses in an Excel file and figure out variance really easily. 
um, it's, it's, it's a pretty easy calculation. It's hard to do by hand, but there's a lot of ways to calculate it. All right. So for our listeners, we will make sure that in our show notes, we've got a link to that to <laughs> yeah, make sure. it a little bit easier. Yeah. Great. So we won't veer too far off on those other paths, but I would like to know, you know, this was part of your thesis project. So what else did you look at? What else might we be able to see in the literature here soon? Yeah, so uh, we have an accepted paper um, on the second part of this project, which was looking at the relationship between central vestibular integration. So these function functions that measure that in this study would be SVV variants and the VOR cancellation and how those functions related to other measures that we traditionally think of are central vestibular integration measures such as balance um, and how those functions correlate with fatigue in people with MS. And we showed that people who have worse SVV, worse VOR cancellation and worse balance on the SOT have significantly worse fatigue as well. Okay, thanks. Is there anything else that you feel like we didn't talk about today that we should have? I don't, I, I don't think so. Um, I think a, an interesting part that I alluded to earlier, though, uh, that might be important clinically, is that these people with MS did not necessarily say that they were dizzy. So we tested any person with MS, whether or not they're dizzy or not. And if you're primarily seeing people with dizziness, you might even find that our data speaks even more to your population, because um, we were just taking a random sample of people with MS from a clinic and still finding these central vestibular issues. Right. It might not be top on their list of issues. Right. With exactly. MS, you have so much going on. Right. So if they don't think they're dizzy, it doesn't mean that they don't, that you wouldn't be able to pick up some trouble with balance or with these vestibular functions. So don't rule it out because they say they're not dizzy. One thing that we ask everybody who is on our show, what do you like to do in your spare time? <laughs> um, so I have really adopted the Southern culture. I'm originally from Rhode Island, but now I'm in Alabama. Um, I got this really old offset smoker from somebody's grandpa down here. And so I am like really into cooking now. Um, I do like briskets and pork butts and ribs and everything um, and really love to entertain, which has been unfortunate with COVID COVID times. Um, I've been basically just making barbecue and delivering it to my friends around the city uh, safely. At least you're distance. delivering it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At least you're it's delivering it. That would be a great way to gain 15 pounds. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it, it's been a problem for me too. So that, that that's my uh, sort of main outlet outside of uh, research. Um, I have a uh, border collie flatcoat retriever mix that I do a lot of exercises with and go to the park with, which is sort of my second favorite thing to do. <laughs> Well, Dr. Cochran, thank you so much for joining yeah, us today. Thank you. This has been fantastic. Thanks so much for having me on. This podcast was produced and edited by the ANPT Degenerative Disease Special Interest Group podcast team. Our team consists of Parm Paget, Sarah Crandall, Katie McGraw, Adriana Carey, and Mira Pierce. And I am Rebecca Martin. Subscribe to our newsletter on the AMPT website, neuropt.org, or check us out on Facebook or Twitter. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with a colleague today. Thank you to Jimmy McKay for music, and thank you for listening. Uh, Pierce, can we add you to our bloopers? Yeah, that would be fine. <laughs> I'll agree to it now. <laughs> ah, sorry, you guys. I'm... Apparently I've been in meetings for too long today. <laughs> I need to wake up a little bit. Let me start that over, sorry. <laughs> I tripped up on it again. In this episode, the j j gosh almighty, I cannot say that word right now. Did I feel bad now. I
I'll, I'll turn on my video, but I'm not wearing anything nice because no. they oh, told no, me I have to. I'm in a t-shirt. You don't have to. <laughs> I'm wearing hiking clothes. Just saying. All right, we're we're good. Yeah. <laughs> wow, you're good. You should have gone first. <laughs>